I'm Anthony Walsh, and this is the Roadman Cycling Podcast, the show where we empower you with the tools to optimize your health, your happiness, and your longevity. Genevieve Janssen joins me today. Now, where to start with this podcast? In 780-odd episodes, I've never recorded an interview like this. I want to start today's show by thanking Genevieve for the incredible bravery she showed by choosing to speak about the issues that she speaks about today. It's my sincere hope that this podcast is widely shared around as a wake-up call to athletes, to coaches, to parents or guardians to watch out for the warning signs of either mental or physical abuse. Genevieve is a former professional cyclist from Canada. She was the world road and time trial champion back in 1999. This is a heartbreaking story of triumph, doping, assault and abuse. I'm going to shut up and I'm going to let you listen to this incredible conversation with Genevieve Janssen. This is a little taste of the way to you today. First thing he did was like pinch my tricep and I'm 13. And he said, well, if you want to be good, you have about 30 pounds to lose. And I remember thinking at that moment, you fucker, I'm going to show you. And I had a bad day. And at some point he hit me in the head. And he said, you know what, that's going to make you tough. If you're able to sustain my physical abuse, it's going to make you a great cyclist. And it's stupid to say now, but I was like, maybe. I was so paranoid, Anthony. I was studying the cars in the streets I was in (laughs) just to make sure that I knew each car. So if I saw a car that was not there, usually I didn't want to go in. Genevieve, welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Hey, thank you so much. Uh, it's so fun to be here. I'm really excited to chat. I sometimes look at my life and I've had these many different chapters in my life where as a football player, then I suppose as an academic moving through law school and then into cycling. Sometimes when I'm sitting on the couch and I'm kind of, you know, writing some stuff in my diary, I look back and it's like watching a movie. It doesn't actually feel like that stuff happened to me. That I'm like that's a weird experience. Like, how did that happen to me? And I have this like disassociation from it. I'm sure there's like a psychologist listening going like, oh yeah, you need therapy for that. But do you ever have that experience where you're looking back at experiences you've been through and thinking, was that real? Was that me? Absolutely. A hundred percent like you. I think I've lived through some stuff that uh, it's basically a, a sequence of events that I have no idea how I got into it how I survived it, how I got out of it, and where I am now in my life. So it's a collection of different experiences. Some are super horrible. Uh, Some are good. Um, I went back to school. I was 30 because in Quebec, we have this high school that you finish at 16. And then you have those two years where you're not at university yet, but you have that transition school. And I never did that. So I finished school at 16 went straight into, you know, pro cycling. And when my career ended and after like maybe five years of being very lost, um, I decided I had to go back to school. So I was 30 with 17 year olds, you know, doing chemistry and biology and physics and all that stuff. And then to university. So I did that and then working in different fields. And now I'm sitting here at 41 and I'm like, I reflect and I, yeah, it's a movie just like you. 
I have a friend who's an ex-professional cyclist as well, and he went back to get his accountancy degree. And he was probably early 30s as well when he went back to school. And he's surrounded by 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds. And he said they'd be like in class going, oh, did you do the coursework last night? And they'd be kind of laughing because they didn't have the coursework done. And he's like, yeah, like of course I done the coursework. Why would I not do the coursework? <laughs> like that's what I'm here for. <laughs> There's such a difference with mature students. Exactly. It was the same experience for me. And, you know, being almost 15 years out of school, your brain is kind of rusty. So to get back into the flow of things and, you know, to, to ignite back your critical thinking and all the, the methodology to go to school, I had to do my homework. So I was basically working as much as I could to pay for everything. And then the rest was in my books. I didn't do any sports, any, anything else. I really wanted to get that degree. Cycling's a bubble for most people who have quite a, I'll call it a traditional journey through cycling and listeners will kind of understand what I mean by that when we get into your story. It's a very non-traditional path through cycling, but cycling is a bubble for the very best of us who have good experiences coming through. And it's difficult to emerge out the far side of that. I can only imagine how difficult that transition was with your non-traditional path through cycling. It was, um, it was extremely difficult because I felt, and probably like, like most athletes that had a good experience, when you get out of the sport, when you decide to retire, you don't have any real tools for life. Most of the time, you don't have a higher education. So your only paths are to stay in the sport, either coaching or managing or you know, working for sponsors. Uh, but when you want to change your life, when you want to create an identity out of the sport... I did not find that I had any tools for real life. I felt like I was 25 and I was starting at 16 again, you know, to learn what I want, what I don't want, what I'm good at. Um, I felt almost non-intelligent because my intellectual capacity was not like super stimulated when I was an athlete because I was always tired. You know, you race, you train. You eat, you watch TV, and you go to bed. And then when the cycling starts to go bad and you have a bad day or a bad week or you're tired, you don't have anything else to keep your self-esteem you know, fed with something else that is going to remind you that you're a good person and you have value in the world. So I had a, I had a lot of tough years after my career. What age did you start taking cycling seriously? You know, I, I know a lot of us rode to school and stuff on bikes when we were children, but separating that part where it's like cycling for performance, when did that start for you? Uh, cycling for performance, I think I was 14 when I sat down with my coach uh, at the time and said, you know, I would like to go for it. I would like to go to the Canadian Championships and the World, the world Championships uh, I didn't know before. At 14, I had a boyfriend that was on a national team and he said, you know, Jen, there are some world championships for junior women. And I had no idea. And when I, I knew that, it's something that interested me. But since a young age, maybe five or six, I knew that I wanted to go to the Olympic Games. I didn't know in what sport or how, but uh, it was always um, a dream of mine. So when I was 14, I would say that's where I decided that I would focus on training. Your coach is an important figure in your story. When you reference your coach there, is that the same coach that was with you through the troubled years? It's, I'll probably pronounce this wrong because my French is terrible despite a year racing in France. André Ubut. Yeah, you got it. Yes, it's the same person. So how were you introduced to André? 
Um, actually, it was about 13. It was spring. And I think I needed something uh, done uh, on my bike. So I went in a bike shop that we had in my, in my little town where I grew up in Lachine on the island of Montreal. And uh, he served me. He was a phys ed teacher, uh, but he had that side job at the bike shop during the summer and the weekends. So um, he helped me with my bike and we started talking that I was doing races and everything. And I remember the, the first thing he did was like pinch my tricep and I'm 13. And he said, well, if you want to be good, you have about 30 pounds to lose. And I remember thinking at that moment, you fucker, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. And after that, uh, uh, the, the coach I had before him found a real job, so he couldn't really take care of the cycling team. And I knew he was a coach, so my dad and I went to see him and said, hey, uh, you know, my daughter needs a, a program to, to train for a season. And he said, yeah, absolutely, I'm going to give you intervals and I'm going to give you a little program. So I started right away like that with that first bad experience. When I think about it now, I'm like, hmm, even the first encounter with that guy was not good. Yeah, but it's also, you know, I think you need to be easy on yourself and show yourself from love because the cultural context of cycling back then, like my first experience going out to my French team, I met my director and he lifted up my T-shirt and he pinched like my love handle and he's like, you four kilograms to lose. And I was like 7% body fat and he's like, you four kilograms to lose. And that was, I didn't think that as odd back then just because... I was in such a fucked up environment. You know, there's a quote being well adapted to a sick environment isn't a measure of health. And I guess that's what we were, just well adapted to this sick environment that you're so used to friends having similar experiences that a 13-year-old girl, someone putting hands on a 13-year-old girl even is crazy now. But to put hands on a 13-year-old girl and say you're too fat is just so unacceptable now, but it wasn't then. No, exactly. It was normal. Uh, you know, body weight ratio in cycling is still very important. And even now, when I look at the athletes, uh, especially, and it's not just about women, you know, men too. Uh, my God, they're thin. Pro sport, in society, when we look at it from the outside in, we think it's like it's super glamorous and we're traveling all the time and we have this great life and you were going to races and we can win or, you know, do a top 10 and stuff. But from the inside out, elite sport is unhealthy, in my opinion. Imagine owning the cutting edge what bike, the pinnacle of indoor cycling innovation. Well, this is your chance to win one. This is your chance to revolutionize your workouts, to elevate your cycling journey to new untold heights. Wattbike's the only brand I trust for my indoor training needs and I've been lucky enough to use Wattbike now for over 10 years and I have the trusty Adam right here beside the podcast table. If you'd like to win your very own Wattbike, we have an amazing competition for you to celebrate crossing the 500,000 downloads per month mark. We're giving away a Wattbike to one lucky winner. To jump in and be in with a chance to win this what bike, all you have to do is click on the link in today's show notes, enter in your name and a way to contact you, and you're in the draw for a what bike. The link is whatbike.com forward slash pages forward slash win hyphen a hyphen what bike. That's whatbike.com forward slash pages forward slash win hyphen a hyphen what bike. 
The link to that is in today's show notes. Coaches, uh, for a long time, you know, we've glamorized this idea of tough love through coaches and we've kind of serialized it through movies where we've Rocky's trainers giving them the tough love. But there is a line with tough love and your coach well and truly crossed that line from a physical abuse sense, an emotional abuse sense, and then later as a sexual abuse sense. What was the first kind of telltale sign that you had that this is quite a toxic relationship? Well, it was quite insidious at the start because he started with, uh, when I was 14, emotional and verbal abuse, but it was always in the context of that's going to make you tougher, you know, because when you're going to be on the start line, if you want to go to the world championships, you are going to be intimidated. You know, there's girls that are going to tell you stuff. They're going to try to make you cry. They're going to push you. And I kind of believed it because at 14... I didn't have any other images or any other role models uh, because I was training most of the time with him. And then, you know, during the, the summer when I was doing the races with, the, with the, the girls of my team, we didn't really talk about that. And then uh, one day I was doing, I don't know, it was winter time and I was doing a super hard training. We had this super long staircase on uh, Mont Royal. So there's a World Cup for men, uh, not a World Cup, but there's a UCI race uh, for men in Montreal. And they go up that mountain. Well, on the other side, there's a staircase. So I would go hill repeats, you know, running up and down that maybe 90 second staircase. And I had a bad day. And at some point he hit me in the head uh, and I was crying and he broke my sunglasses and everything. And he said, you know what? That's going to make you tough. And if you're able to sustain my physical abuse uh, and not cry and, you know, just take the hits, it's going to make you a great cyclist. And it's stupid to say now, but I was like, maybe. Because in a racing environment, it's like the jungle and, you know, you're going to be faced by all sorts of physical pain. And I kind of, in my 14-year-old head, wrap that around saying, yes, he's right. And, you know, he's my coach. He's supposed to take care of me uh, and do stuff that's good for me. So it started there. But after that, it went downhill pretty fast because I was good. I was already winning. And when I was 15, I won the national championships in the juniors. So against girls two years older than me. And that's when, you know, sexual abuse started and he told me he was in love with me. And mind you, he's 41, I'm 15. If I would leave him, he would commit suicide. And, or if I would leave him, he would find me, kill me, and then himself commit suicide. He didn't care. So it started kind of there. And I didn't want to have the suicide of someone on my shoulders. And at the time, you know, there was no Me Too movement. Uh, we were taught as women that if you get raped, it's probably your fault. So I couldn't tell that to anybody. So I live with that and I didn't want him to kill himself. So I just continue. But at the same time, I had that dream. You know, I wanted to be a good cyclist. And I remember thinking at that time, I'm going to deal with the consequences later. You know, I, I'm just going to move forward and it's going to go away, but it never does. So is there a sense, and I know this is going to sound crazy for probably anyone apart from you, is there a sense that at the time it's like the end almost justifies the means? I'm winning races, I'm progressing, I have this dream and I'm moving towards this dream. So if there's side effects, you know what, I'll deal with those side effects because I'm going the direction I want to go. 
you're absolutely right. That's what I was thinking at the time. And, you know, people were proud of me. My family was proud. Uh, my friends were proud. I, I was, like you said, moving forward. And that goal of the world championships, just a participation to the world championships was getting closer. And I, I loved my sport. I loved training. And since I was so isolated again, I didn't know if it was normal, if uh, it happened to other girls. It, it was just like the way to go in sport as a woman was that. I had no idea. So, yeah, I just said, okay, I'm just going to keep my eyes on the prize and everything else around. We'll see later. And I think the isolation piece is important to this because I came up training with, you know, four or five quite close friends and we'd meet every single day for training and I couldn't have bought a new pair of socks without the guys all knowing about it. Everyone would be like, oh, new socks, where did you get the new socks? So they were intimately involved in every aspect of your life. But if you don't have those close training partners, there's nobody to notice those days when you're coming in either physically or mentally bruised. You're absolutely right. And, you know, in Quebec in the, the late 90s and early 2000s, women's cycling was extremely small. There was maybe five good women. And when I was 16, I moved to Arizona with him to train full time, you know, when I graduated high school. And back then in Arizona, I mean, I hardly spoke English. Uh, we didn't know anybody. So no one knew. My parents didn't really see what was going on because when I was coming back home, you know, for a few weeks a year, I was putting on my best face because I didn't want them to, you know, uh, be worried or to get me out of my sport that I loved so much. So yes, I didn't have that support where people could see me from day to day. People saw me with months in between. So you moved at 16 years old away with your 40 plus year old coach. Yeah. Well, <laughs> how did it happen? I guess um, when I turned 16, and I had won, you know, Canadian championships and everything as a 15-year-old <clears throat> against juniors, he decided to quit his job, to take care of me 100% full-time. And he needs now money. So at 16, and that's where the EPO came in, so he needs money to pay his bills, constantly threatening me that, you know, if you leave me, I'm going to commit suicide. And now, I mean you're in charge of my financial health because I'm going to lose my job. And if you look around, there's no other little girls that have a coach that, uh, that's as dedicated as I am towards you. That's why they're not good. And he was kind of right, right? Uh, the other girls had club coaches and I was beating them. So I was like, yeah, he's probably right. And again, I'm scared of being beat and him commit suicide. So at 16, we discovered that I was anemic. So the only way to treat anemia is with rest and, you know, iron shots. And he told me, well, Jen, we can't wait that long because now the summer is just starting. That was in, in the spring of 1998. Summer is just starting and I don't have any salary coming in. We absolutely need you to perform and to get sponsors. So I'm going to bring you to this doctor and you're going to take EPO because, you know, my financial situation is on the line. And I knew going into the doctor's office that, that wasn't right, but what was going on in my life, I was doing everything to be beat as least as possible 
and not to be in a bad situation where I would suffer mentally, emotionally, and physically. So I kind of had no choice. So that's when DPO started. And at first it was just to treat my anemia. So a few injections and that's it. But of course it was not like that. So when I started that, it coincided with, well, now we need to train all year long because next year you're going to be junior and you're going to be able to go to the world championships. And, you know, we have to keep those performances coming in. So since in Quebec, I mean, we have eight months of winter and four months of shitty weather, uh, we moved to Arizona so I could train all year. Before I jump into the EPO, I think the context to your mental health, for want of a better term, at that point when you take EPO is important. So you're in Arizona, you're living with the coach full time. The relationship is still physically abusive if you're not hitting times on intervals. It's mentally abusive and manipulative. But is there an ongoing inappropriate sexual relationship as well? Because you're still below the age of consent. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's uh, it's ongoing and it's I don't really have a choice either because I just can't refuse, you know. And are you living with him? I am. Yeah, full time. So you're being subjected to these sexual attacks on a daily or weekly basis? Yeah, maybe not daily, but uh, definitely was part of uh, of the relationship and it, it that was the toughest part to admit. I thought I would I would die with this secret. Um it's only in 2021 that I decided to open up on that because it's still happening in cycling, it's still happening in sport. And it has to stop. And I, I'm fortunate enough now to have a super healthy life. Um, you know, I did 15 years of therapy to understand everything. And I want people or I want women and men, because it happens to men too, as we see it in hockey here in, in, in Canada, that it's possible to heal from that and to have a positive life after. So I decided to go forward and go past my super shame and comfort to share and, and help these people as well. So yes, it's a long answer to your question, but I'm living with him and all the violence is happening. That's heavy. That's hard to process. In his warped mind, is he in some sort of consensual relationship with you, even though you're not capable of consent still at this age? I have no idea. Sometimes I'm asking myself like, why was I chosen as this little girl to live through all that and, you know, experience all that bad stuff? And I, and I wonder also what was going on in his head during all these years. But anyway, how can a 41-year-old can be attracted by a 15-year-old? That's crazy, but it's, a, it's answers that I'll never have. So even if I could come up with all those thousand different scenarios in my head, it's not going to get me further ahead in my, in my personal growth. So I've decided to, to put that aside, put these questions aside because I'll never know and I'll never forgive him and I'll never talk to him again. I am not interested in knowing. But yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty fucked up. Has he tried to make contact? No. Uh, the last thing I heard from him, he's still living in the, in the US and he got uh, arrested by the police for domestic violence. Uh, so that's the, the, the last thing I heard from, from him. And I learned in the newspaper. Did you ever consider pressing criminal charges? I'm considering it more now and I, I won't. And the reason is back then, uh, first, I, I never thought I would admit to everything. 
none of the violence, none of the sexual abuse. To me, it was, I was less ashamed of people thinking of me as an athlete that failed a drug test than a person I did not want to be associated with a, a person that lived through sexual abuse. So I was totally fine about leaving it to only performance enhancing drugs. Uh, so I never thought I would press charges because it would bring the story up to reality. But after that, um, I decided that I only had enough energy to better my life as a person. So all my resources, all my intellectual, uh, or all my, my, my spirit energy, I wanted to put it into healing and make myself a better human and really not live with all that baggage that's not mine. So I poured myself into, into ther therapy. Um, and now when I think of it, it would take me so much energy to bring that all back up and, you know, to press charges where criminal, civil, for what, you know, he's going to go to jail for what, like one month. So I'm not sure I'm going to do it. I, I like to believe that life's going to take care of him. Uh, but sometimes when I get really angry about, you know, abuse stories in sport, of course, I, I think about it. And that's why when we move on to this next chapter of doping, that it's a difficult pill to swallow. I've talked to plenty of athletes on the podcast and they've doped and they regret the decision and they had various motivations for it. But this is so connected to the physical, mental, emotional and sexual torture that you were put through because now it's almost it becomes difficult for you to come forward as a 17 18 year old and talk about any of the abuse you suffered because the abuse is so linked now to your epo usage which ends your cycling career which is all you care about at that point in your life yeah you're absolutely right i could not go to my federation because the the doping would have come up and with doping i would have being suspended. And at that time, I mean, I have a team, I have a cycling team. I am, I'm employing girls that are making a good salary. So they have a little job. They can live their dream also to be professional cyclists. Uh, I have sponsors and obligation to those sponsors. I can't really get another coach because he's going to kill me if I leave or he's going to commit suicide. And then with another coach, uh, you know, if I don't take the EPO, my what are going to be my performances? Maybe they're going to, you know, go down. I have no idea. Of course they would, but I have no idea. Um, I couldn't go to the anti-doping agencies because the only thing they would see is, is the performance enhancing drug use and I would get banned. So I was kind of, I, I was trapped. I was in, in that prison. That was a golden cage prison. And I, did not, did not understand how to get out of it. Our sponsor today is Caldera Lab. As road men, we're out in all sorts of weather. And I have to say, I've really started to notice the effects of that exposure. I'm just spending too much time in the elements and the sun, the wind and the rain, and it's taken an effect. More fine lines, wrinkles and visible signs of aging. When I look into the mirror some days, it's like my dad's face is looking back at me. Over the past six months or so, I've been looking to optimize all aspects of my health and I've really focused on finding a solution to this exposure. I'm obviously not going to stop riding my bike. The culmination of my research is being Caldera Lab. I started using this product as a customer because of the depth of clinical trial data showing that this stuff really works 
And I have to say, I chased them super hard to get these guys on board as a show sponsor. So how it works is they have three products and you use them in the morning and then again in the evening. The first one is the Clean Slate, which is a balancing cleanser that uses gentle plant-based cleansing, leaving your skin feeling exceptionally refreshed. The second one is the Base Layer, and this is a nutrient-dense moisturizer which hydrates your skin. And the third one is called the Good, and this is a serum which helps your skin to look younger, tighter, and smoother. The combination of these three makes up your morning and evening routines. We have an exclusive offer for our audience so you can try this for yourself and you don't have to take my word for it. You can get 20% off with our code which is simply ROADMAN. Head on over to calderalab.com forward slash roadman and use that discount code to unlock your youthful glow and be ready for the summer. I'm going to leave that discount code and link to Caldera in today's show notes. So take me back. The year is 1998. It's the year before you become the double world champion road and time trial in 99. You're diagnosed with anemia. Your coach has gone all in. So he needs you to make cash. And you've come or your coach has come to this solution that the treatment for your anemia is EPO. Did you have an awareness what EPO was at the time? I did because of the, the Festina affair in 1998. And that's going to sound super cliche, but everybody that knew about the doping, which was not very many people, were like, ah, everybody is doing it and they have no test for it. I, I knew it was bad. I didn't like it. I felt like I was going into that rabbit hole uh, that was even more and more, you know, narrow. I was getting into trouble that I could not really deal with. I didn't know how to deal with. What do you mean by trouble? It's a secret that you can't share with anybody. You're, and and you're, you're actually, you're a criminal in the world you live in. Because if you take regular society, if you do something illegal, you're a criminal. So if I'm living in the world of sport and I'm taking EPO, which is banned, I'm a criminal. So now I'm the criminal in the, in the place I live in. I'm being abused. And I have kind of no way out. So, and all that, that 16 year old. Um, but yeah, I knew, I knew it was not, yeah, I, I knew it. Did the moment the EPO went into your arms, was that, when I look at your story, there's, there's so many crossroads. And when people think about crossroads, they often think there's a conscious choice at these crossroads. But so many of your crossroads, and not to excuse somebody's, you know, crossing the line because some of these things there is no excuse for, but there is circumstances and justifications for it that make one person's decisions different to another. And you definitely were working through an extraordinary set of circumstances that I've never heard a comparable story to this before. That moment when EPO first went into your veins, did that feel like another crossroads? Like, oh, there's a line definitely crossed here. It did. I felt like I went to the dark side of sport and that I was getting to a point in sport that I never thought I would be and that was not interesting to me. Uh, you know, sports for me was always getting the best of my body and, you know, trying, uh, trying to have fun doing it. So it felt, it felt very dark, very dark and very lonely. Anyone I've talked to on the podcast who's crossed that line they said there's a couple of elements to it, but one of the most difficult ones to deal with was 
the extreme paranoia that accompanied it. Oh my God. You've crossed the line and it's like looking around and going like, I'm going to get caught. There's testers coming. I'm going to get caught. And I've, people have recalled stories of like army crawling on the ground on their own apartment because there's a knock on the front door. Did you have comparable experiences? So much. I was so paranoid, Anthony. I was studying the cars in the streets I was in <laughs> just to make sure that I knew each car. So if I saw a car that was not there, usually I didn't want to go in. I didn't want to go in, into my front door because... You know, it could be it could be a, a tester, but then it gets you also paranoid with your friends and your teammates. You know, you I, I was always I I could never live with uh, you know in training camps and stuff. I could never be in the same apartment as my my teammates because those stupid products were there. So I was always stuck with my coach in a different apartment with him without any contacts with the girls except, uh, you know, when we were riding our bikes together. So all these experiences before the ride and after the ride and having fun with the girls, I didn't. But then you think, okay, do they see it? Do they know that, you know, if they come to my house and for dinner, are they going to see something different? Are are they going to look around? And then when you travel, I mean, you're in a new place. You have no idea who can show up. You hear a knock on the door at night. I mean, even if it's your friend, you don't want to go answer your door. You know, you're peeking through the blinds to see. It's crazy. It becomes so encompassing. I mean, I was never an addict of recreational drugs, but I read many books of a heroin addict. uh, And one is uh, Keith Richards' biography. And he talks about where he was going on tour and always looking for heroin and how he would get it because he couldn't travel with it. And that's the only thing he was thinking about. How am I going to get the drug? Well, for me, it was not that. But, you know, you think 24 hours a day, even when you sleep and you hear a noise, you're like, fuck, is it like a a, a tester that's coming to my door? That's the only thing you think about. And you miss so much stuff in your life just because you're focused on that. It's it's not worth it. But it's crazy because you're... Your safe space is cycling. It's the one thing where you fit in, where you know the etiquette, you know what to wear. You're the cool kid in cycling. And now with a simple injection, you've ostracized yourself from the only community that you feel connection to. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you're still part of the community, but it's on the surface. You don't really feel like you belong to that community. And the thoughts and the emotions and the paranoia you're experiencing, they remind me so much. I've had some, I love the story of rebirths. Like no one really likes the story of the person who was good, got better, got better, got better, was clean, cut all the way up and then won everything and then retired happy. It's not a very interesting story arc. It's normally like good, huge setback, overcame the setback to have victory. And I've had some amazing people on the podcast where they've gone down a road of criminality and they've crossed the line into gangland and they've come back to make their careers as professional athletes or movie stars. But when they recall and tell me about those darkest times when they were involved in heavy criminality, it's all the same emotions and paranoia that you're talking about. It's the noise on the roof at 1am and they're wondering, is someone coming to kill me? You're wondering, are the testers at the front door? It's crazy that an injection which on the grand scheme of things from killing people to armed robberies, it's quite trivial, but it elicits all the same paranoia and emotions simply by virtue of the fact that you've stepped across that line and now have become a criminal. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, sport is a reflection of society. So you find all the same feelings, all the same emotions, all the same reactions in sport that you can see uh, in society or that, like you said, criminals can live through when they do stuff in regular life, not sporting life. Um, And it's something that I wish the doping agencies would talk more about. I mean, they're all about testing and anti-doping and, and, you know, doing a lot of education on what the athletes have to look for as far as what they consume and, and, you know, the different products and the medications and the TUIs. But there's not really former athletes that fail the drug test that work for these agencies. And I believe that it would be like super pertinent to have like people like me that live through all this doing also outreach and education for the anti-doping agencies because we know what's the other side. But I think unfortunately still now uh, we're viewed as outsiders and bad people and dopers. So I hope that's going to change in the future. I don't ever think that somebody is the worst decision they've ever made. Like if you happen to be caught for one of the worst decisions you ever made, I don't think that makes you a bad person. I think if most of us, myself included, search our souls for the worst thing we've ever done, if somebody took that act, they blew it up for the media to play out in all its unsightly glory, and everyone that didn't know us judged us off that one data point, I don't think any of us will come out looking very good from that. Yeah, you're right. We all have our different stuff. Uh, There's always a period in our life where we kind of messed up. But you know, for me, my worst decision was not taking EPO because it it was not my decision. I believe my worst, worst moment and my worst decision was allowing my former coach to do all these things he did to me because I had this intuition inside, you know, I had this voice inside telling me, Jen, you can't live like this. It's not normal. Uh, Even if you don't see around, if other girls are living the same thing, it is not normal. I knew it inside and I did not listen to that voice. But Jen, how do you get out? Like, who failed here? Who fucked this up? Like, where's the checks and balances that failed? How do you stop Genevieve going through this again? How do you stop the next generation, you know, succumbing to the same fate? Yeah, it's an excellent question. I think that athletes and people that lived similar situation as I did, it's our duty to talk about it and to make it known. And so athletes that are going to be in that same situation if they hear my story and if there's a girl that, uh, you know, she's 15, 17, 20, I, she can be or he can be any age. If he or she know what happened to me and listens and knows that that's not normal and sees the same flags, the same patterns, that athlete might say, mm, I heard Jen talking about it. That's probably not right. I have doubts. So I'm going to pick up the phone and I'm going to call. You know, we have this uh, nonprofit organization in Quebec called Sportide, which it's a uh, 24 hours, seven days a week 
line that athletes and the the whole of the sports system in Quebec can call and say, you know, I'm I've I've been a witness of violence. I've been a witness of this. This is happening to me. Is that normal? Uh, is there something I can do? And they're going to be guided in their decision. So yeah, I, I think it's it's our duty to to be able to share, but. You know, it's a process. It's all an individual process. It took me more than 15 years to be able to talk about all that stuff. So for some people, it might be longer. For some people, it might be shorter. But I, I'm, I'm hoping that those pro-eminent athletes a little bit like Andrea Agassi and Michael Phelps did with their mental health, they came forward and they, they talked about what they lived. It kind of makes it more normal to feel that way. And athletes can can go to resources to help them a little faster if they if they see that such winning athletes have been through that. Does that make any sense? Yeah, and I think what you're doing is so important. And there's so many people listening to the podcast, maybe they're you know, son or daughters involved in team sports, whether it's hockey or football or whatever it is, you know, we're all so busy and we're all balancing a hundred things, but it's just to be on the lookout for these early signs because I think without the earliest, like if the physical violence is nipped in the bud early in your story, I'm not sure if it ever progresses to the scale that it did. So it's so many people could be on the lookout for that because there's no level of physical or mental abuse from a coach, which is quote unquote acceptable. Absolutely. And there, there, there's two things <clears throat> with what you just said. One, when I came back to Canada in 2012 and I started talking about with people uh, more and more that knew me, they knew, they knew something was going on. And they almost all told me 90% of the people that I talked with, and even more when I came out with, with my, my abuse story in 2021, they all said, we saw something. We saw you were not right. We saw the violence in him. We saw the difference between when you were by yourself and you, when you were with him, but we didn't know what to do. We didn't have any resources. We didn't have anybody we could go and call. Um, I was unaccessible because the coach was, you know, filtering all my contacts and all my emails and everything else. So they didn't do anything. And then secondly, I think parents and the, the, the sports community, we make the mistake of seeing a smile and a podium and we equate that immediately to well, everything is going well, you know, she's winning or he's winning or she has a smile on her face. So everything must be super well in the athlete's life. And it's not always true. So it's important to be on the lookout. And it's important that when we are witness or when we feel or when we see that our friend or our kid or our brother, sister, anything, we see the change, we need to address it. We need to stop looking the other way because the athlete has success. There's so many tragic aspects to this story, but for me as an athlete, the question I always tried to answer through my athletic career, and I think I largely answered it, was like, how good can I be? And I hit my ceiling. I got to a point where I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to make world tour. I've, I've cut all the weight. I've made all the sacrifices. I've based myself abroad. I've optimized my training as much as I'm able to do financially and mentally. 
this is my level. And I'll never look at the World Tour guys now in the Tour de France and think, oh, maybe that could be me. I've no interest in it. Like I've seen what it takes to be the 1% of the 1%. It's not for me. I can't breathe that rare air that they breathe. The coach didn't just rob you of your youth and your innocence. He robbed you of an answer to that question. How good can I be? Yep. And it's um, it's a question that I ask myself a lot these days because, uh, like I said earlier, I um, I told you, I'm, I'm not sure I, I said it recording, but I decided to go back to racing in 2021 when I turned 40 because the only power that my coach has on me still is he robbed me of having fun in races, having fun with friends, trying my best and getting dropped. Uh, the relationship between pain and not finishing an interval set and being super proud of yourself because you gave it your all, it was never good enough. And that doesn't belong to me. You know, that belongs to him. And it's his cassette tape that plays in my brain. So I decided at 40, I'm going to rewire my brain and I want to make, I want to write the ending of my sports story. Um, so I decided to go back and, and do gravel racing and I'm, I'm really struggling with all the, 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 the past emotions and, and the past intellectual reflexes and everything. But it's a, it's a path that I'm on right now and it's extremely enriching for me as a, as a, as a human being. And every time, you know, I'm, I'm training and I'm doing my, my stuff here, which, it, you know, sometimes it's a, it's a super long bike ride or sometimes it's going to be hard intervals. And, and I'm thinking now I'm, I'm 41. Uh, recovery is not the same. I have a job. I can't, I cannot train 25 hours a week or, you know, 25,000 kilometers a year anymore. And this is the shape I have. Uh, I'm in. It's been 18 months now that I'm training after drinking wine for 15 years and doing nothing. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to regain all that strength all at once. Uh, so I'm going through this process, but it really pisses me off. I would have loved to know who I was with an athlete, who I was as an athlete back then when I was 20 and, you know, in sport, 100%, that was my life. But you know what? The next chapter is an exciting one as well because it's how good can I be within this container? And you're building the container for yourself. The container is maybe a temporal container where it's how good can I be with 10 hours a week where I still have the freshness to pursue a personal life, a work life. And it's a really fun, exciting challenge because winning looks different. And I think we are entering into a an era in sport where winning looks different. We can't say that success is somebody that wins a gold medal in the Olympics if the process of them winning the gold medal also destroys their mental health, their physical health, their relationships, because that's not success. So maybe success looks like winning in this container. And I think that's the chapter you're about to embark on, which is super exciting. Yeah, it's exactly it. I'm trying to be, uh, I'm trying to be good not the best. I'm trying to be the best I can in many things. And like my, my psychologist told me a few years ago, he said, Jen, it's better that you're 80% good in sport, good at your job, good as a friend, good as a partner, good as this and this and this, than being 100% good in only one thing. You know, your life is going to be more rich if you're good enough to have fun and be proud of yourself in all these things, because human beings were not only one thing, 
So I thought that was super interesting. And yes, um, it's exactly the path I'm on. But at the same time, you know, it would I would love to see a change on the global level and for people and sponsors and, and organizers and team managers to understand that, you know, 50th is good. It's not always one, two, and three that are good. It's not always a medal or top five that are that, that's good. It can be good for a long time. Well, I think Gravel is bringing that spirit out now because we're seeing, like, I almost don't know who wins Gravel races. Like, and I don't almost don't care. It's about the stories on the way. Like, you get a, maybe the winner matters or the podium matters. But after that, like, you come fifth and who came fifth in Badlands last year? I haven't a clue who came fifth in Badlands last year. But I know loads of my friends who had crazy stories and experiences in Badlands and memories that last them a lifetime. And I think that's what winning is. Yeah, it is. It's actually building your 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 bank of human experiences and discovering who you are who are you after 50k who are you after 200k what's going on in your head how are you going to go through this process or this obstacle or when it's going great you know how do you feel when when you're 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 crashing because you didn't eat enough what do you do so i like to say that i'm my own little personal science experiment and I want to put myself in as many situations as I can to figure out all these things about me. For me, it's fun. It's a puzzle. Uh, it's not always simple or easy, but it's something I enjoy. So that's what I'm looking for. And that's exactly why I chose Ravel. Just more than the beer, of course, the, the, the beer at the end, it's the adventure and you know, going through a journey, not just being three hours on a bike to, to try to win a bike race. And so we're both off to Badlands at the end of the season. So how are you feeling about figuring out this puzzle for your personal science experiment? It's a bit of a conundrum to figure out. I'm not entirely sure how you train for this or how you get ready for this. I'm kind of winging it. Yeah, but I've, I'm, uh, I have no idea because I have zero experience in, in ultra-endurance sports. Um, I have the, 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 the pleasure to do it with one of my greatest friends, uh, Lynn Bessett, who is in Canada, probably the best endurance sports women we have in the country. Um, she has a loads of experience in, uh, in ultra endurance events, uh, adventure raids, uh, long running races, long cycling races. So we're going to partner up for this. But so far, I mean, we just came back from a two weeks uh, adventure in France because uh, some of her friends in, in Quebec are organizing a 500-kilometer uh, endurance event, and it's going to be their fourth year they do it in Quebec, but they want to do one in, in the south of France next year, so we went and tested the course. And, of course, my fitness is absolutely not at her level. She is <laughs> extremely fast and extremely endurant, and she could ride all day without sleep. I can't. And I'm, I'm figuring out that I'm the kind of... Uh, of of girl that I can ride hard and fast for six to eight hours, but I really like coming home after and prepare a good meal for a bunch of my friends and have a glass of wine. So it doesn't take away from, from the, 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 the athlete I'm developing to be as an ultra endurance cyclist. But uh, so we had, we have um, a little bit of a, a distance between our fitness so my goal right now until Badlands is to perfect my form 
to be able to be as close as I can to hers so she doesn't have to wait for me <laughs> all day, every day in Badlands. So yeah, it's, um, it's a bit scary, I would say, but very exciting. And now I have three months where I'm going to fine tune, uh, you know, all the little pieces of the puzzles I can and the ones I have control over. But yeah, I'm, I'm kind of wing, winning it too. Go back and listen to my podcast with Lael Wilcox. Uh, it's, it's a good few months ago. But Lael talks about her preparation for uh, Oh, she's so amazing. She won the female category last year and she's a rock star. She's talking about like seven minute naps and then going oh again for God. another 12 hours. And she is crazy. Like she went for a nap. So she rode for, I think, like 18 hours. And then she's like, okay, I'm tired. I need, I need to sleep. So she pulled to the side of the road, didn't take her helmet off even, left her helmet and sunglasses on, set her alarm clock for 45 minutes later, woke up seven minutes later, said she felt refreshed, so rode like another 18 hours again. Oh my God. I'm like, you're a rock star, Leo. You know, <laughs> that's going to be that's gonna be unrelated, but the only times I did that, take th- those kind of naps, is when I was working in the restaurant industry and I was closing the place down at like 4 a.m. in the morning and I was working brunch the next morning and I had to be there at 7. I would keep all the little makeup I had on. I didn't even change my clothes. I would put my alarm and sleep like this and then would wake up and go back to work. But yeah, I'm not sure I would be able to do that after an 18-hour day on my bike. Definitely not. Let's see. Jen, thanks very much. Your story is a super important one. And I know this is a podcast that's going to get widely shared around because so many people are touched by physical, mental, or sexual abuse within sports. And I think the story is a wake-up call for people to pull their head up from their busy lives and watch out for those warning signs. Well, thank you for having me, Anthony, and giving me that platform, you know, to reach out a little bit more uh, to, to those people. And it doesn't have to be in sports. You know, you can see that in your workplace. You can see that in your personal relationship or a friend. And it's super important to share. So it means a lot to me that you took the time to, to speak with me this morning. Gotcha. Badlands. Yeah, we'll see you then. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.